Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Christopher Leonard on the Lords of Easy Money. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the history category for episode number 71 with Jacob Goldstein on money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. I'm the co-host of Planet Money and the author of the new book, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. You're listening to Books on Pod, hosted by Trey Elling, a great, well-informed interviewer. I love talking to him. Hello, readers. Christopher Leonard is a business reporter whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Fortune. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of The Meat Racket and Kochland. His newest book is titled The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. Chris, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with this book? Uh, it was pretty simple, actually. I wanted to write a book that was easy to read and quick and clear and would explain to people why, okay, hang with me here. Explain to people why the Federal Reserve is so important and, and why it has fundamentally changed our economy over the last 10 years. And the reason I say hang with me is, you know, I personally never thought I'd become obsessed with the central bank and the Federal Reserve. But starting back in 2016, I became really convinced that the Fed is, is a key thing to understand when you're trying to describe the American political system and economy today, and particularly why the income gap is widened so wide between the very rich and everybody else. So I'm trying to explain what the Fed has done over the last decade and, and what it's done to our economy. So before we get into the more modern story that you're telling throughout these pages, it's important to look back on the history of the central bank, which you do a great job of over the course of a couple of chapters. The U.S. Central Bank, a.k.a. the government-run bank that controls currency, was created here in this country in 1912. What were things like fiscally prior to that? Uh, insane is how I would put it. Things were insane before we had the Federal Reserve. And, and I definitely don't argue that we should like get rid of the Fed. And in fact, the way I see it is that if America could exist without a central bank, we would. Uh, we've chartered a central bank and then revoked a charter two times before we formed the Fed in the early 1900s. And, and the reason we did it is because things were so chaotic beforehand. In the late 1800s, in the early 1900s, it's kind of amazing to realize this, but in the United States, there were literally thousands of currencies. We did not have a standard national currency before the Fed. So if I lived in Illinois, my currency would be produced by a local bank. And if I went to Oregon and stayed in a hotel, for example, I'd have to have this argument as to whether my currency from this Illinois bank was sound. And it wasn't just chaotic in that sense, but our economy was defined by these periodic banking panics and long bouts of deflation. And it really pushed us to, to realize that we needed to create a central bank to do two critically important things. The first was to create and manage a national currency. That, that thing we call a dollar is actually a Federal Reserve note. So the Federal Reserve created our currency and manages it. 
And then the second all-important job that the Fed had was to be the so-called lender of last resort, meaning when there was a banking panic, this central bank could step in and print new money and loan that money to otherwise healthy banks to sort of stop a panic or short circuit a panic before it started. So that's why we created the Fed. And it's it's really a super important job. It, it's I mean, it's no exaggeration to say it. it's the bedrock of our economic system. And the first major financial crisis of the uh, of the era of the central bank, I guess, of the American central bank, did involve the Great Depression, of course. Uh, considering how complicit the Fed ends up being in so many other financial crises going forward, what was the role in this one, Chris? Yeah, fascinating question. Um, you know, in, in the lead up to the Great Depression. Of course, we had uh, this sort of booming stock market frenzy of the 1920s and just total unregulated stock market issuance. And, and an important thing we're going to talk about, which is an asset bubble, which is when asset prices rise so high that they're just totally unjustifiable. We saw that in the stock market in the 1920s, these sky high stock prices, which came crashing down. And, and in retrospect, the Federal Reserve at that time was seen as sort of not doing enough because the Fed was sort of on the sidelines in a way back then. Uh, it was managing the currency and, and bailing out banks in the case of a panic, but the Fed was seen as kind of keeping the money supply too tight in the early 1930s, which is a lesson that would be kind of extrapolated into the, the future. But, uh, you know, eventually, it's so interesting, actually, like, after the crash of the 20s, the real authority that came in and did something about it was not the Fed, which handles so-called monetary policy. But what helped us after the Depression was the fiscal, so-called fiscal authorities that can tax and spend, like Congress and the White House. You know, after the crash of the 20s, the federal government came in, broke up the big banks, nationalized the toxic bad banks put a leash on Wall Street by creating the Securities and Exchange Commission, by dividing up what banks could do. You know, after the Depression, we separated the speculative investment banks from the commercial banks that hold our checking accounts. And we had these sweeping structural reforms in response to the Depression. So that was, that was a really important distinction from what happened after 2008. Why was the great inflation of the 1970s so uniquely destructive, especially at that time? Fascinating story. So obviously today, people are looking back at this period a lot of, of the great inflation of the 1970s. Really, in a way, a, an economic crisis that was almost as transformative as the Great Depression, and just in terms of what it did to our economy, and, and I feel like the, the history of the great inflation is, is poorly understood in the sense that when we look back, everybody kind of remembers the very high consumer prices. You know, the price of meat was rising dramatically, the price of oil, cars. Um, that's what people remember from the great inflation. But, but the history is a little bit more complex. The Federal Reserve itself, okay, this isn't me talking, this is the Fed talking. In a 2004 study of other studies, the Fed concluded that the central bank itself played the pivotal role 
in creating the great inflation of the 1970s. And, and the Fed did it because it kept money too cheap for too long. Um, you know, I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but the Fed, when I say it manages the currency, really what I'm saying is, is the Fed manages the supply of new dollars in our system. The Fed can literally create new dollars out of thin air, or it can extinguish dollars. And, and when it does that, it's kind of, we could call it loose or easy money when it, when it expands the, the pool of dollars, or then tight money, when the Fed kind of tries to tighten. And during the, 1960, during the 1960s, the Fed kept money too cheap for too long. And, and the effect economists talk about is that you had too many dollars chasing too few goods, all right? All this money's out there flowing in the economy and it drives up the prices. But, but critically, it did a second thing. It didn't just stoke price inflation, it stoked inflation of assets. Uh, again, that thing we talk about, the asset bubble. When the Fed kept money too cheap for too long in the late 60s, it, it created a run-up in asset prices for farmland, commodities, uh, real estate. And, and that inflation of, of assets coupled with price inflation created a huge economic shock in the early 1980s when the Fed finally stepped in and dramatically tightened the money supply to fight inflation. Incidentally, I want to say like, the government had tried to do everything it could do to stop inflation. The government literally imp imposed price controls, wage controls. Nothing worked until the Fed stepped in and tightened the money supply. But then that caused not just prices to fall, but these asset prices crashed. And, and it created the biggest banking crisis since we've seen uh, since the Great Depression. So the to me, I think the take-home point is that the Fed was a critical player in the great inflation of the 1970s. It played a critical role in creating the inflation and, and it waited way too long to do something about it. And so when it finally had to act dramatically in the 80s, it created an, an economic crisis. Well, you said that the Fed made three big mistakes back in the 1970s that drove all of this up. It started with bad data, included... Uh, kowtowing to political pressure. And there was also a lack of understanding of how monetary policy affected the economy and could possibly stoke inflation. Perhaps hindsight is 2020, but that's crazy to think that the Fed had no idea that uh, such policy could wield such control on inflation. Amazing point. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. These are these mistakes you're describing, these three key mistakes help explain why the Fed kept money too easy for too long in the late 60s, early 70s, which really caused inflation to explode. And, and yes, it's, it's stunning, uh, particularly the acknowledgement that the Fed was flying blind, if you will, really lacked data to measure the effects of, of what it was doing at that time. That, in, in other words, the, the Fed was relying on data that was turned out to be incorrect, so it wasn't appropriately measuring the effects of what it was doing, what that had on the money supply. But then in a bigger way, the, the more fundamental mistake was that the Fed didn't appreciate the, the deep role it was playing in stoking inflation, uh, that, that 
you know, when it was keeping money easy, it was driving up these prices in, in assets and, and price inflation. And so that was sort of a realization that came over the ensuing years as they sort of looked back and did an autopsy on that inflation. And, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the, the historical record is clear that, that over the last decade, during the 2010s, without question, the Fed was making similar mistakes. It, it was relying on faulty forecasts that were erroneous as, as we look back and compare them against what happened. Uh, and and it, it was making similar mistakes during the 2010s of keeping money too cheap for too long. Well, and we're also seeing uh, consumer price inflation and asset inflation intertwined once again, too. That's why this moment is scary, to, to put a simple word on it. And, and in many ways, analogous to the 1970s, it's never apples to apples. This isn't exactly the same. But, but there are really striking similarities. Um, you know, I, I, the chapter about the great inflation, as you know, I call it the great inflation parentheses S, like great inflations, because what was happening back then was this run up in, in prices, consumer prices and assets, critical thing to understand. What's been so interesting about the last decade from 2010 until 2020, is that the Fed didn't just create easy money policies, it created hyper easy money policies, which, which we can talk about. I mean, I'm talking 0% interest rates for almost a decade, coupled with hyper accelerated money creation. But during that decade, the Fed never saw price inflation occur, which a lot of people thought was going to happen, that there'd be this run up in prices for food, energy, all the rest of it. But the Fed did see runaway inflation in assets, okay? When the stock market doubles over a decade, that's asset inflation. When home prices rise 18% year over year, that's asset inflation. That inflation was happening in a very hot way over the last decade. But now what we're seeing uh, over the last year and a half or so is that for the first time, price inflation and asset inflation are rising quite quickly in tandem. And, and we haven't seen that in a decade for sure. And this insane creation of money really got going with the 2008 crash. How did this illuminate the chasm between the power of the Fed versus the power of fiscal authorities like the White House and Congress? Yeah, to, to me, that's really a heart of, of the story. Um, the, the book walks through some of the history you and I are talking about all the way to the creation of the central bank and the inflation. But as you know, it really focuses on what's happened between 2010 and, and today. And the point you bring up about the chasm in power between the Fed and, and our democratically controlled authorities is, is a really important one. So the book opens November 2nd, 2010, which I think is, is a critically important moment in our history. Um, on, on, on the one hand, you've got our, our democratically controlled fiscal institutions, which were just wallowing in dysfunction. Uh, November 2nd is when the Tea Party movement swept to power, uh, took over the House of Representatives, had huge gains in the Senate. And whatever you might think of the Tea Party, agree or disagree, you know, their key tenet, their, their key platform was one of stopping federal action. They were very opposed to what Obama was doing. 
they're, they ran on a platform of shutting down Congress and they achieved their aim. So you, what you have over the next, you know, really decade is Congress becoming paralyzed, uh, sitting on the sidelines. And so that means the fiscal authorities essentially sideline themselves. And, and what's so interesting to me is in the face of that kind of dysfunction of our democratic institutions, it empowers our non-democratic institutions. And I'm not trying to say non-democratic in like a pejorative or like I'm saying these things are authoritarian, but in, in, in our country, we've created a few institutions meant to be kind of insulated from elections or the will of voters. Think about you know the military, the Supreme Court, and in economic affairs, the Federal Reserve. These institutions can move quickly because you know they don't have to have these democratic debates. The Fed, as a central bank, it, it was built to be independent and, and built to be kind of insulated from voters. So the Fed is governed by a committee of basically 12 voting members called the Federal Open Markets Committee or, or the FOMC. This is a committee of 12 people that decides what the Fed is going to do. And in November 2010, on November 3rd, to be specific, this committee decides, okay, we're going to commit the Fed to a truly experimental course of, of basically trying to implement a jobs program. Okay, this isn't, we're going to just manage the currency or we're going to bail out banks during, during a crisis. This is saying, we're going to try to drive the American economy through money creation. That, that's a wildly experimental idea. It's, it expands the Fed's role in our economy. It had never been done before. And that's what the Fed did on November 3rd when they decided to do two things at once. They decided to continue to keep interest rates pegged at zero. Uh, can't overstate how radical that is. Interest rates had kind of brushed up against zero briefly in the past. The Fed said, we're gonna pin them at zero for years. And at the same time, we're keeping interest rates so low, which makes money very easy and very cheap. We're going to do this experimental program called quantitative easing, which is basically just money creation inside the banking system. So the Fed creates, through quantitative easing, $600 billion. Uh, in, on November 3rd, 2010, the Fed votes to create $600 billion inside the banking system with the goal of trying to stoke lending and stoke growth. And that was really the beginning of a, of a decade of hyper easy money policies. But at that early November 2010 vote, there was one man who I'm calling the hero of your story who pushed back. And this was unique for a couple different reasons. One, the FOMC tended to vote unanimously on things. And that was done, as you explained, in part to make sure that the public had complete trust in the policies that they were putting forth. But Tom Honig was a man who was not willing to accept that. Why did he push back so hard leading up to that 2010 vote and eventually end up voting no, although the other uh, 11 members all voted yes? Thank you so much for bringing that up. So yeah, Tom Honig is an unexpected hero of my book. He, he's a guy I didn't know anything about before I started reporting this. But as I started researching this, this radical program, Quantitative Easing, I saw the vote to implement it was 11 against one. And, and you've got it exactly right. During 2010, 
when the Federal Reserve decides to go down this path of pegging interest rates at zero, creating all this new money, there was one guy who voted no at every single meeting, and it was Tom Honig. He, uh, the, the Fed is actually a collection of 12 regional banks, and Honig is the president of the Kansas City Fed. And to me, what's so interesting about this guy is in 2010, he was the longest serving member on that committee. Uh, Tom Honig had sat on the FOMC committee since 1991, and he had been at the Fed since 1972. And in that position, he had learned a lot. He had seen what had happened at the Fed when the central bank kept money too cheap for too long is one of the basic lessons. Or, or more broadly, he saw what happened when the Fed moved too aggressively one way or another, when it tightened too quickly or kept money too cheap for too long without thinking on more of a long-term horizon. And, and it was that experience of the 1970s, I think, that really shaped Honig's views. He was at the Kansas City Fed during the great inflation, but then critically, he was a bank supervisor in the early 1980s after the collapse. So, I mean, he literally had to go around and clean up all these banks that had seen that the value of their assets just crash. And, and we actually had the worst banking crisis since the depression in the early 80s. And Honig saw that stuff firsthand. And then critically, over the next decades, he saw firsthand how the Fed stoked these asset bubbles or how the Fed stoked asset inflation by keeping money too easy in the late 1990s, uh, when the Fed directly stoked the bubble in the dot-com sector, which crashed. And then during the 2000s, when the Fed stoked a housing bubble, which crashed. And then we come to 2010, in the, in the sort of shadow of that housing bubble crash, what Honig is saying is, listen, folks, I know that the economy is bad right now, okay? This is 2010, unemployment is 9.7%, economic growth is super weak, but all the economists knew that that was going to be the case after a financial crash. And, and what Honig was arguing in 2010 was, we need to show some restraint right now and keep interest rates very, very low but not zero. We need to maybe have interest rates at like a half a percent or maybe even 1%, which again, historically super low, but we need to let the economy start to heal and grow on its own instead of engaging on this path of pegging interest rates at zero and then critically doing this plan of quantitative easing, which Honig called making a deal with the devil, uh, which as, as you point out in the culture of the Fed, that's just like, remarkably uh, incendiary language. I mean, this is a, 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 an institution that, that tries to be, you know, consensus driven and technocratic. But Honig said quantitative easing would be a deal with the devil for three key reasons. First, it was going to make the rich far richer. It was going to widen income inequality because it was going to stoke asset prices. And, you know, the very top 1% owns vast, you know, way more assets than everybody else. And second, uh, after you know, increasing income inequality, the, the program was going to make our, our system more fragile by stoking up these asset bubbles and, and sort of laying the groundwork for another financial market crash. And then third, once the Fed goes down this path and starts printing money in this way, 
Uh, Honig warned in 2010 that the Fed would find it incredibly difficult to stop doing it. You know, he's saying like, when are we ever going to pull back? And and I argue based on the evidence, he was correct on all three of those points. But of course, he lost the battle. Uh, he was the only guy who voted no, even though there's a lot of dissent within the Fed. He was the only one who actually voted no. Uh, and, and this program continued uh, after he left. In his final argument before the vote, he also said that the program could unanchor inflation expectations, which is apparently not the same as saying it would cause inflation. What did he mean then? Great point. Um, you know, by the way, Honig was misremembered by history as voting against all this stuff because it would cause inflation. And in fact, going back and looking at his arguments, they were much more nuanced than that. And his three key arguments are the ones I just related. But when he talked about inflation, he, he mentioned unanchoring inflation expectations, which, which is really interesting. And, and what he's saying there is that even before you see price inflation, if people expect that inflation is going to rise, it can start to change their behavior. Um, it, and particularly when you look at banks, it, it, it pushes them to make riskier, uh, riskier investments because you know, if, if the value of a dollar is falling in, in future time, um, it, it can push you out onto the risk spectrum. And it can push you, uh, for example, to, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think about how to phrase this. If you think prices are going to continue to rise, um, it, it can cause you, for example, if you think that farmland values are going to continue to rise, it can push more money into investing into farmland, uh, which stokes demand for loans in farmland, which causes the price to rise, which causes the expectation that the price will rise, which pushes more money into it. So I think the headline around inflation expectations is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that the expectation of future inflation drives behavior that pushes inflation higher. And again, this is exactly what we're seeing happen today it's what the Fed is really keeping a close eye on, because once that expectation of inflation starts to increase, uh, it, it drives inflation itself, and it means inflation starts to become more embedded in the system. So quantitative easing is voted in on November 3rd. How did business change on November 4th, 2010 for the Fed and the institutions carrying out quantitative easing? Huge question. Um, Huge question. Things change fundamentally. Let's talk about how things change for the Fed and then how things change out there in the real economy. Um, here's how things change for the Fed. Uh, we, we talk about the Fed managing our currency. The Fed can create new dollars out of thin air. In the first 95 years of its existence, in the first century of its existence, the Fed increased the amount of original dollars, what we call the monetary base. The Fed created new money at this kind of slow, incrementally larger rate. So like the, the, the graph of new money just rises in a straight and steady line gradually. 
so that over the first 95 years, the Fed increases the monetary base to about $900 billion. Okay, that's like the foundational amount of new money. Then between 2008 and 2014, because of quantitative easing and a few other programs, but basically quantitative easing, the Fed explodes the monetary base by about $3 trillion. So uh, let's measure it by the Fed's balance sheet, which reflects how much money it's creating. There's an increase of 3.5 trillion between 08 and 14. So that's like 350 years of money creation in about four and a half years. And that's just the beginning. I mean, now, so the graph of the monetary supply spikes and has never gone back down to a normal range. Um, in 2020, in response to the COVID crisis, the Fed created 300 years worth of new money in a matter of months. So the Fed commits itself to this very aggressive and accelerated rate of money creation that is pumped directly into the banking system. That's the key thing to understand. When the Fed creates new dollars, it doesn't create them in like my checking account or your checking account. It creates new dollars inside Wall Street, uh, specifically inside the, the bank vaults of 24 select institutions called primary dealers, which is like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, you name it. It's the big banks. So, so this brings us to what happens in the real economy. Okay, so the Fed commits itself to this money creation era. And I would describe what happens in, on Wall Street and in the financial world, the, the best phrase to describe it is there is a tremendous search for yield. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means the Fed is keeping interest rates at zero for seven years, okay? So if I'm a hedge fund on Wall Street, I can't really save money, you know? There's no yield in, in saving money. The interest rates paid on my savings are super low because the Fed is keeping them low. And at the same time, the Fed is literally pumping trillions of new dollars into the banking system. So all this money, which I, I think of money as, as like minnows seeking food, like all this money is going out into the system seeking a place to be invested at, at the very moment that the Fed is making sure that these dollars can't be saved. So they've got to go out into the market to find yield. And, and you see this in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, in the Bloomberg, in the Financial Times. The decade was driven by a, a frankly frantic search for yield. And, and like, look, here's the short headline. It pushes this money out into risky investments, okay? Remember the housing bubble of like, the sort of like famous, you know, landscaper who borrowed $500,000 to buy a house with no accounting for their income, et cetera. That kind of dynamic was applied across the financial spectrum. So the money went into tech stocks, it went into risky corporate junk debt, it went into uh, commercial mortgage-backed security, it went into uh, emerging market debt. It, it went into um, you know risky dollar-denominated bonds in China for real estate firms like Evergrande. The money goes out into these risk assets and drives up the price. So, so let's just look over the course of a decade. What that means is that these asset prices for corporate debt, uh, tech stocks, real estate these asset prices are really, really, really high because of all this money that's been pumped into the risky assets, 
which makes our financial system extremely fragile and prone to crashes. So quantitative easing didn't do most of what had been promised by Bernanke and others. So how did uh, Ben Bernanke justify more quantitative easing not long after that November 2010 vote? And was the FOMC uh, this that submissive the second time around? Um, the FOMC was remarkably submissive with each round of quantitative easing, um, you know, the round that Tom Honig voted against in 2010 ended up being one of the smaller rounds at a stunning 600 billion. Um, in 2012, Bernanke pushed another round, which ended up being 1.6 trillion. Here's what's so interesting to me. Your, your question is how did Bernanke justify it? So fascinating. And, and the first thing I wanna point out is you had kind of the public rhetoric around this program. And then you had the internal rhetoric and the internal debates, okay? So the Fed committee we just talked about, the FOMC actually transcribes their meetings. They, they meet every six weeks, they transcribe their debates, and then the transcripts are released five years later, at, at which point nobody ever really reads them. And frankly, it's like thousands of pages of kind of tedious meeting language, uh, but, it's fascinating to go back and read that because you see that the internal debates, the rhetoric used was starkly different, starkly different from what was being said publicly, okay? In public, Ben Bernanke would go out and give these speeches and media interviews where he downplayed the significance of quantitative easing, okay? He said on 60 Minutes in 2010, we're not printing money which is technically true because the money is created on a ledger that's digital and the, the treasury prints the bills. But like on a fundamental level, that's just totally misleading because they're creating money at a massive scale. Okay. So he's sort of downplaying the significance of it and, and then overstating the benefits, overstating the benefits publicly is a consistent theme you see when it comes to quantitative easing in the federal reserve. Um, they use this sort of anodyne language about, you know, with quantitative easing, we're going to we're going to encourage lending to households and corporations In, internally. What they were acknowledging was that the, the, the gains to actual job creation from quantitative easing were going to be quite small. Uh, in the first round that that 2010 round of of 600 billion in QE they knew that it was going to shave only 0.3% off the unemployment rate, which, you know, it means a lot to the people who get those jobs. But on the other side of the ledger, what they were acknowledging inside the Fed was that this program was going to build up a lot of long-term risk, those high asset prices we just talked about, um, the, the continued obligation to keep printing the money, these long-term risks were going to pile up for these relatively short-term gains. Uh, so again, I'm sorry it's so long-winded, but like the answer to your question is that Bernanke in public was saying, hey, the Federal Reserve has got to do something and we need to use every tool at our disposal and we are going to do another round of quantitative easing because it seems like it's been effective. And, and so we're going we're gonna to act because not acting carries risks. The economy is weak. You got a debt problem in Europe. 
but but inside the Fed, there was this much more stark acknowledgement that like they were getting very meager short-term gains, very meager gains for wage earners and job creation while they were piling up these long-term risks. And it's just an extraordinary story. Uh, to be honest, it, it surprised me. One of the more heartbreaking is maybe not the right word. One of the more frustrating stories in this book that I think also exemplifies how corporate America was really handling their affairs at this time involves Texas Instruments. How did they go about exploiting the system through the zero interest rate policy and the crazy amount of money that had been pumped into the system in a manner that so many others were doing as well? This is what I'm talking about, man. It's crazy. So what in, in 2012, I mean, this is the key uh, debate, in my opinion. I mean, I thought the debate in 2010 about, about the first round of quantitative easing was kind of crazy. But then in 2012, Bernanke is pushing for another much larger round. And this is exactly the contrast we're talking about. He's, uh, Bernanke's going out publicly saying, we think these tools are effective. Uh, we're we're going to do more. But inside the Fed, there's this incredible debate in September 2012, where the regional bank president from Dallas, this guy named Richard Fisher, says in a meeting, he says, I just got off the phone with the chief financial officer from Texas Instruments, huge company. And this chief financial officer tells Richard Fisher, he says, look, you guys can pin interest rates at zero and you can do another round of money creation and quantitative easing but it's not going to prompt Texas Instruments to hire one more person or invest one more dollar in research or build a new factory. All this money was going to do was incentivize Texas Instruments to take this low-hanging fruit, okay, to do this certain kind of financial technique that makes sense in a 0% world which is that you borrow cheap debt, hyper cheap debt, all this money searching for yield, Texas Instruments would borrow the money, use that money to buy back its own stock, uh, which then delivers all that cash directly to shareholders. And, and the reason you wanna buy stock is that these policies are driving up the stock price. These policies, as the Fed knew it would do, these policies are driving up stock prices. So. What this guy at Texas Instruments is saying is like, all you're doing is, is funneling this money around the Wall Street system, whereby we borrow, we do share buybacks, and that's what we're going to do again if, if you do another round of QE. And, and Richard Fisher brings this up, you know, naming the, the Texas Instruments chief financial officer. And, and Ben Bernanke's response was, in black and white in the transcripts, Bernanke says, you know, thanks for your point, but please don't bring in information from people who don't have a PhD in economics. That's anecdotal evidence, which to me is like breathtaking hubris, but also very uh, emblematic of Fed leadership, which is sort of like, if you don't understand how our macroeconomic models work, then, then please don't come to the table. And, and I saw this disconnect all the time You've got these hedge fund private equity firms out there on Wall Street operating under the Fed's rules. And then you've got these economists inside the Fed tied to their models. And there, there's a huge disconnect between the two. 
God, that is arrogance beyond belief. You may be the smartest guy in the room, but Chris, if you aren't willing to listen to others, you're actually one of the dumbest in the room. Now, that's not a problem if you're a minion, but if you're somebody who's leading the whole damn thing, I mean, boy, there are some massive mistakes that can be made along the way, and that's what we've seen play out too. Indeed, and I just want to say, I mean, those black and white transcripts, it's, I, 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 you know, I'm talking emotionally here, but on the in the book it's just laid out and that's exactly what they said and it's very emblematic it's very emblematic of the leadership at the fed what is the clo assembly line and how did it create the most corporate debt in u.s history so in the 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 middle part of the book is called the the age of zerp and zerp stands for zero interest rate policy which is when the fed keeps rates at zero for seven years and pumps all this money in through quantitative easing, I'm trying to chart the real world effects, okay? And that search for yield drives everything. Um, and, and people often ask, okay, where's the bubble? We understand the dot-com bubble. We understand the housing bubble. Where, it, you know, if you're arguing money was too cheap for too long, where was the bubble during the 2010s? And, and the answer is that there were several bubbles, uh, not my words, the words of Wall Street is that it was an everything bubble because the, 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 the easy money effects were so fundamental. I mean, the Fed was printing so much money, it affected all these different areas of the economy. And one of the key, key bubbles is what you just, just described, which is the market for corporate debt. Um, let me tell you, the world of corporate debt is simply fascinating. Um, you've got corporate bonds, okay, which is like when I'm a big corporation, I borrow money through a bond. And then, then you've got this other thing called a leveraged loan, which I, I walk through in the book. It's, it's just consider it like a bank loan to a corporation. And Leveraged loans are kind of considered um, a relatively risky instrument, um, but but most critically, they're exotic, okay? A leveraged loan is not just like a share of stock that you can buy that's got all these rules around it. Leveraged loans can be tailored to the individual corporation. And so they used to be used by these sort of like kings of finance types, right? Like, like the private equity firms and KKR and people like that. But during the era of ZERP over the last decade, the market for leveraged loans just exploded. And, and, and okay, you asked what a CLO is. You remember during the housing crisis, um, all these companies like Countrywide would extend these subprime mortgages and then bundle them into this thing called a collateralized debt obligation and sell that on Wall Street. So it was just this bundle of home loans. Not surprisingly, the same model was used in the 2010s for corporate debt, where all these leveraged loans were, were packaged into these products called collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, essentially the same business model, and sold on Wall Street. But what, I mean, I interviewed one of the guys who made a living doing this at Credit Suisse Bank. Um, he worked inside the assembly line for CLOs, and he was very candid with me in describing how the search for yield pushed money into this once exotic market. And, and what I'm talking about here is like the retirement fund for teachers in Kentucky, like the retirement fund for government workers in California. 
these once conservative pension funds in a world of easy money are like desperate to find yield because that, that yield is what they pay to their retirees. So you've, you've got these pension funds dumping money into the market for CLOs, which is crazy. And this guy was telling me that like, you know, the pension funds were agreeing to riskier and riskier loans to buy because they had to. There was just too much cash floating around uh, in, in the system. So the, the, the total value of corporate debt in America was about $6 trillion in 2010. And it doesn't double, but it hits uh, about a little over $10 trillion by the time COVID hit. So that's a huge increase in corporate debt. Um, the value of collateralized loan obligations or CLOs just explode. Uh, these assets are being held by the big banks on Wall Street. It, it's, it's the home loan factory just repeated again in 2010. You write that, quote, maybe the strangest creature that evolved during the era of ZERP was the negative interest rate bond. What exactly is this? So I, I try to walk through in this chapter where all the money went and where the bubbles were created. CLOs and corporate debt, just obvious, egregious uh, example of this. Um, tech stocks were another example. And then what you just brought up, negative interest rate debt, which in a normal environment should be an oxymoron. It really should. There was no such thing as negative interest rate debt before the decade uh, of the 2010s. I think 2012, if I'm not mistaken, is the first time a government central bank issued negative interest rate debt, which is basically, I am paying you money for the privilege of loaning you money. In, in other words, I, I loan you $100 and I get negative interest rate, meaning I pay you uh, essentially every year for that loan, which again, it makes no sense. It violates the fundamental rules of lending and finance, but it's a creature of this environment because this is, I'm telling you, fascinating because I, you know, you interview the PhD economists who run the Fed and they say one thing, but then you interview the actual people out there trying to make money in the bond markets and they're saying something else. And here's what these people were saying in 2016. They were saying, I will pay the government of Germany money to keep my cash under a mattress. That's what negative interest rate debt is. You're just saying, okay, uh, uh, Switzerland, uh, Germany, I believe Japan, we'll pay you money, but just hide our cash under your mattress. That's how like conservative the bond market was during the 2010s. And, and that's how much pressure there was uh, to, to put the cash somewhere. Um, negative interest rate debt rises from nothing, uh, non-existent in 2010, to something like 30% of all global debt by 2018. That number might be slightly off, the correct number's in the book, but it's roughly a third of all debt is negative interest rate. And I mean, geez, I just read a story this morning that the European Central Bank is talking about raising their interest rate to negative 0.4% right now. So 
it, it's a um it's a it's a it's a flashing red light on a dashboard that indicates we are living in in an extraordinarily distorted financial system and a lot of that traces back to the actions at the federal reserve and, and these hyper easy money policies it just breaks my brain to think about negative interest rates i'm i'm not the most financially savvy person but that makes it sound like you pay somebody money to take on a loan is that that's exactly okay that's exactly what it is okay i'm pay i'm paying you money to loan you money and 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 that should be nonsensical shouldn't exist never did exist and now there are trillions of dollars in negative denominated debt and incidentally chapter one of the book is called going below zero and that was you know the Fed was keeping rates at zero and we have never done negative interest rate, but like quantitative easing or, or getting rates at zero and then pumping all this money into the financial system was kind of the way to take our rate effectively below zero. So yeah, we're living in a, um, it's like a bizarro world of finance. We are in a modern dystopia, man. All right. Uh, why was there a near financial catastrophe in September of 2019, and how was the crisis averted? So for the purposes of this discussion, I'll keep it simple. But, you know, starting in 2017, 2018, the Federal Reserve is saying, okay, we have got to normalize. We, we have got to raise interest rates a little bit, and we've got to withdraw some of this trillions of dollars in cash we put into Wall Street. Because if we don't, we're going to stoke these asset bubbles to just very, very dangerous levels, and we're going to create price inflation. So that's why the Fed was like, we've got to normalize, we've got to tighten. And also, I'd like to say they, they were trying to do it so that they could have some ammunition on hand if there was another crisis. This is important. So the Fed starts to tighten in, in 2018 and 2019. And let's just look at one element of the tightening, which is that, you know, the Fed pumped trillions of dollars into Wall Street. And, and literally that cash was like sitting inside the bank accounts of those primary dealers I mentioned. Huge. Um, I, I describe it as like, for most of the last century, the Fed was filling glasses with water. That's the money supply. It was lowering and filling these glasses. But then after the crash of 08, the Fed it didn't just overfill the glasses, it flooded the glasses and had to build silos to hold the money. That, that's like the scale of difference in how much money the Fed was creating. So the Fed is trying to pull some of this cash out of the banking system. And in September, 2019, there's, there's a financial panic. The system short circuits on September 6th or 7th, uh, right in early September 2019, because the Fed is drawing down those cash reserves on Wall Street by taking out the money that it had injected, and it just hits this threshold. And literally over a weekend, the banks say, oh, let me pause. The, the banks hit this level where they, they kind of hold on to their money. And this is critical because there's this loan market that never gets talked about, but it's, it's vital to Wall Street. It's called the repo loan market, repo loan, R-E-P-O. And a repo loan is supposed to be a hyper safe 
form of debt financing. I won't get into the details, but it's how banks fund their operations. And, and a repo loan is extremely safe. A, a bank um, gets a repo loan on, on a treasury bill, and then they reverse, they, they, they loan out the treasury bill, they get it back for a cash thing. So it's a, it's a super safe loan that's fully collateralized. And, and critically, what we need to understand is, is, is the interest rate on a repo loan is super low. Just it's like 2% or something like that on an annualized basis or less. And in September 2019, the cost of a repo loan jumps to 10%, okay? It jumps from basically 2% to 10% in a few days. That 10% repo loan rate is like a financial panic number. That, that's what happened when Lehman crashed in 08. And again, we're talking September 2019, nothing, there was no Lehman collapse. Um, it, it was a bank crisis that appeared to come out of absolutely nowhere. But it was a function of the fact that the Fed had so distorted the financial system that as it withdrew the cash, the system short-circuited. And the Fed had to step in and re-pump the cash back into the system, okay? The Fed printed 400 billion new dollars, injected it straight into the banking system to stop the repo loan crisis. Uh, a, a remarkable event, which just showed how deeply trapped the Fed is in this money printing regimen. And I mean, as you can tell, it takes a bit to describe that. I think your next question is about the hedge funds that got bailed out um, by the repo loan um, maneuver. And, and, and these hedge funds had made all these very risky bets. And when the repo loan market rose, the hedge funds found themselves high and dry and might've caused a cascading set of defaults. But when the Fed printed that $400 billion, it, it bailed out all of these hedge funds that had made these risky bets. And what's interesting is that it encouraged those hedge funds to pile back into the market. It didn't just save them. It showed them, oh, the Fed's gonna come in and print when there's a short circuit. So not only did they get bailed out on their risky debts, uh, risky bets in the repo market, they, they increased it, which, which increased our fragility and exposure for what was to come in 2020. And the sheer amount of money that was created in that moment to uh, bail the situation out was not only concerning, but also very frustrating to plenty of folks, including Tom Honig. But you will have to buy the book to check that out. Wanted to move along real quick to uh, the most recent uh, the most recent uh, thing that is affecting this story, well, I guess we could add Russia and Ukraine to that now, but uh, COVID uh, obviously had a huge impact on economies around the globe. Why were treasury bills the biggest concern in March 2020 as the pandemic was gripping the U.S.? And what perplexed insiders so much about this? So COVID was, uh, you know, once in a generation style uh, economic crisis. We've we've never, you know, when when the pandemic flu of 1919 hit, it was a very different world. Uh, it wasn't nearly as interconnected of global supply chain, global finance world as existed now. So the world had to shut down entirely and then try to restart, which is you know on its own 
a horrific economic uh, impact. But critically, the Fed's actions over the previous decade made our financial system incredibly fragile. So it turned an economic disaster into an unprecedented financial crisis. Um, you know, we talked about corporate debt and CLOs. What that means is that when COVID hit, when the first cases of COVID start to appear and, and you realize we're going to have to shut down all the restaurants, at least temporarily, you look at the American corporate system and you see these record levels of debt that make American corporations incredibly vulnerable to a downturn. They, they were uh, supremely unprepared for a shutdown. And the airlines, for example, you know, had done just what Texas Instruments had done, which is you know, use the easy money and the debt to buy back shares of stock. And then when they confront the COVID crisis, the companies are extremely fragile. They, they don't just not have any you know, backup reserves but they're on the hook for these regular debt payments that, that they have to meet or default. So this is one of the reasons why the COVID crisis of 2020 was truly catastrophic from, from a financial perspective. And that crisis exhibited itself in the market for treasury bills. Um, in March of 2020, we had a financial crisis worse than the, the crash of 08. It's just that it happened very, very fast. And it happened at a moment when every American, everybody around the world, frankly, had bigger things on their mind with, you know, like homeschooling and whatnot. Um, but the, the market for United States Treasury debt uh, seized up on March 16th, 2020. Literally, the market for treasuries froze. There, was, there were no buyers willing to buy, no sellers willing to sell at the market price, and the market froze. This, this was supposed to be impossible. The Financial Times reporting on the treasury market said analysts thought such events were, were impossible and couldn't happen, but it happened. And again, that's because large in large part, it's because of the financial fragility that had been put into the system through these Fed policies. So, which is not only is saturated the American economy, but obviously, as you talked about a little bit earlier, because of how reliant the world is on the dollar, had had an overall impact on the world economy too. That's right. Um, that's why you know the Fed is truly the world's central bank. I mean, the the this is such a fascinating thing for today. The dollar is the world's reserve currency, which means it's like the backup cash that other central banks keep. Uh, it's sort of like the, the global language of finance is spoken in the dollar. Um, that, that's what makes the global system work. And, and so when this panic hit the globe, everybody wanted to simply have cash on hand. I mean, even US government debt wasn't safe enough. So this is why in a, in a matter of a few months in 2020, the Fed prints $3 trillion, 300 years worth of money creation in a few months. And, and it's worth stepping back here for a second. You know, back in 2010, when Tom Honig was doing all these descents, 
the Fed's balance sheet or the assets it has on hand, which kind of reflects how, how big its footprint is or how much money it's printed, the Fed's balance sheet was about $2 trillion. And then by 2014, the balance sheet is about $4.5 trillion. And everybody's like, oh my God, a $4.5 trillion balance sheet. We've never seen that. This, this is crazy. We've got to draw it down. The balance sheet today is $9 trillion and expanding. Uh, so, you know, the Fed's reaction in 2020 is another step change in history, another massive increase in, in the footprint of the Fed that further deepens its, not just its intervention in our markets, but sort of its obligation to keep printing money to stave off a financial crisis. That's why the repo crisis was so important is it shows what happens when the Fed starts to tighten. And so now the Fed is even more deeply committed to keeping those money spigots on to forestall a financial crisis. Oh, man. All right, Chris, last question here. Um, taking all of that into account, taking what's happening uh, in Ukraine involving Russia into account, what do you think we're in store for over the next year to five years? Well, I'll tell you what, even before Ukraine, we were in store for a remarkably volatile year. And like, I'll just be blunt, when I talk about volatile, I mean like a market crash type scenario because the Fed has, has, has committed itself to this easy money world, but then price inflation was rising incredibly quickly and incredibly hot. Okay, in, in January of 2022, this year. So that's like a gun to the Fed's head. That's saying, hey, Fed, you have to tighten. Okay, you don't have to, we're not talking you need to tighten to have um, more ammo in your belt for a rainy day. It's like if you don't fight inflation, inflation is going to potentially spiral out of control like it did in the 70s. So already we are in this very tense and fragile position where the Fed was gonna to have to raise rates to fight inflation uh, and, and risk creating a massive market crash uh, by doing so for the reasons we've outlined. Then the unthinkable happens, but I wanna say the unthinkable has a tendency of happening. Uh, uh, housing market crash, COVID, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, these things happen. And, and the question is, you know, how fragile do you make your financial system um, so that it can't take these events? But, you know, Russia invades Ukraine, creating massive instability and further stoking inflation uh, through the energy markets. Like, so what this does, it puts even more pressure on the Fed to do what the Fed didn't want to do, which is to tighten the money supply and, and it, it really just, in my mind, also illustrates the total lack of wisdom that the Fed has shown over the last decade, because the Russian invasion of Ukraine is exactly the kind of scenario where you want to have a central bank that can cushion the blow. But the Fed can't do that now because interest rates are already at zero. It's already pumping billions into the banking system. They have lost the ability to react to a crisis. And... Furthermore, they're going to have to tighten to face inflation. So it just, it kind of intensifies and exacerbates a delicate situation that was already in place. 
Wow. Well, uh, thank you for that analysis there. And thank you so much for this book. I know I called Tom Honig the hero of your story, and he is. But uh, I also have to tip my cap to you for doing everything you can to try and blow the whistle on a massive problem that is going to do a lot of damage before it's all said and done. He is Christopher Leonard, a financial journalist and best-selling author. His newest book is The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Chris, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this crucial book. Thank you. I appreciate it. Stay tuned. I have some special programming coming up over the next couple of weeks. I'm covering South by Southwest 2022. That involves some Zoom conversations, some in-person conversations, and some red carpet chats as well, starting with Andrew Zimmern tomorrow. Plenty of big names coming up, and I do appreciate you listening. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.